Conventional conventionists. Thanks for tuning in to Time Warp Radio, the Rocky Horror Picture Show movie by minute podcast, where with each seven minutes, bomb, 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 we can make you a I'm Haley Mervini. And I'm Katie Tomini. And we are deep dive analyzing Rocky Horror in seven minute chunks. And this timestamp we are focusing on today will be minute 6.51 through to minute 13.53, which will end with our hero laughing. It could be maniacally. It could be nervously, uh, but it's right before he's going to try to self-inflate a flat tire. Uh, We've left off with Brad and Janet at the Denton Episcopalian Church. Ralph and Betty have just left in their marriage car, and we're going to go into the details of this scene, this awkward, naive proposal of wacky sorts (laughs) (laughs) and uh damn it janet the iconic musical number as well as an introduction to our criminologist and as far as like what we're really excited to talk about today we love barry bostwick like i have such a crush on him to be honest such a babe such a babe like a babe then a babe now an iconic performance, and we're gonna deep dive into his career then, his career now. Uh, but what what do you what do you think uh, this segment's kind of about, Katie? So this segment, um, you know what? I I'm gonna go out on a limb mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and say that this segment is about two very confused young adults. Okay. Trying to figure out how to fit into heteronormativity. Yeah, we'll 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 get into it. (laughs) And I just think it's wild because all of the events of this film are transpiring over the course of one evening. Like Katie and I were hanging out yesterday and like watched a movie last night. That was our ordinary night. It's crazy how fast things can escalate, how quickly someone can embrace a different lifestyle. You know that, that uh, what's the curriculum for middle school, like puberty classes, like abstinence training? <laughs> like it only takes one time to get knocked up. I just think it's, it's nuts what we might discover in this segment. But we'll we'll get to it. We'll get to it. (laughs) Uh, We begin with Brad. He's doing an okay hand signal to Ralph, who's just honked his horn a couple of times. We see Riff and Magenta in their American Gothic cosplay on the porch behind them. 
And Janet is just so adorable, and she's wrapped up in wedding fever. Oh, Brad, wasn't it wonderful? Didn't Betty look radiantly beautiful? Just an hour ago, she was plain old Betty Monroe. Now she's Mrs. Ralph Hapshat. Okay, pause. So, <laughs> I'm sorry, but Betty Monroe sounds like some beautiful actress. Yes, I agree. And now she's Mrs. Ralph Hapshat. Okay, and the callback for that line is, have shit will travel, but... It's not, uh, it's not far off from what the name actually is, you know? She could be marrying Danny Zuko, you know? That's, that's a totally different connotation in a name. But instead, she's marrying puke <laughs> hapshit. <laughs> so she trades in this beautiful movie star name. Betty Monroe. And it's a downgrade. Totally a downgrade. A downgrade. And, okay, not just it, are they beautifying the, like, new, her new name. Janet has also just described her as plain and old. Like, that being single immediately makes you a spinster. Like, we just saw Betty. She's, you know, she's like an average beautiful woman. She's got nice hair, she's got a nice smile. Like from what we see of her, she's quite a catch. To be compared that way to now being radiant and beautiful just because she's a bride, I think sets up Janet's real feeling on, um, I guess the ceremony of getting engaged and getting married. Yes, Janet, Ralph's a lucky guy. Yes. They start walking through a graveyard. Um, they pass an elderly couple. The older woman says, I always cry at weddings. <laughs> and in all directions Brad could lead her, he takes her toward headstones in a graveyard <laughs> and decides that's where he wants to make his great proclamations of love. I don't know. I think it's a bad omen. <laughs> if my if my partner started leading me into a graveyard, I would be like, uh, are, are, can we go toward like the, the, the garden instead, maybe? <laughs> but also, this totally reminds me of the opening scene to Night of the Living Dead. <gasps> yes, I agree. We, okay, we had to watch this scene because we saw that it may be an homage to Night of the Living Dead, and it 100% feels a call, like a callback. Yeah, because they're movie. in this cute little vintage car, mm -hmm. and they drive up together, and then they are just walking through a cemetery, and I was like, this looks totally familiar. But it, like, exactly, it feels familiar, it feels ordinary like what's what's so harmful about a cemetery it's that it set it foreshadows that barbara is about to get got you know <laughs> it foreshadows that there's about to be a zombie attack that the movie begins in a cemetery yeah our movie begins at a church and a cemetery it's it's setting their relationship up for sure or everyone knows Betty's a wonderful little cook. <laughs> yes. 
why Ralph himself, he'll be in line for promotion in a year or two. Yes. I, of course, because I shadow cast as Janet, interpret these lines every time as if I were getting them present day and this was the proposal I were getting right now. And I would hope, like, there were, there were more aspects to Betty and Ralph's relationship than that she cooks him dinner every night and that he is waiting for an eventual promotion that, like, might never come. And she's marrying him for the promise of that, like, elevation in status, elevation in class. But Ralph is currently still an entry-level dude. But you do have to remember the only reason he showed up to class anyways was for Betty. (laughs) So he's obviously not a super hard worker. He's not super focused. No, exactly. That's a good point. And they were inseparable. So I guess like Betty doesn't have aspirations either for going to college or, um, I mean, it was also expectations of women at that time in the seventies were that you would home make Mm -hmm. and your husband would bring home the bacon, like leave it to beaver. (laughs) And in the seventies, that's when it really started to revolutionize and question gender roles and roles in a relationship. I think that's the entire basis of what Brad has decided now that he wants to propose to Janet right now. Like, I think that's why they walked into the graveyard too, is... It's the death of their single life. It's the death of their single life. Okay, yes, I love that. And he... We just heard him say, who knows, to his one of his buddies who's asking him if, if a proposal is on the horizon, which it literally is. <laughs> like, Remember, he, Brad has the ring in his pocket. Uh-huh. And he says, who knows? I don't know if I want to get hitched yet. He doesn't. But he's just laid out his expectations for a marriage. The wife cooks the dinner. And as long as he's working, that's what you you do, right? Like, (laughs) all of our friends are getting married. We should just, yeah, let's, let's do it. So at this point, as they're walking through the cemetery, they stop in front of a sign that says, Denton, the home of happiness. And it's this big billboard with a heart and an arrow through it. Mm -hmm. I think it um, looks like an erection. It does kind of look like a boner pointing right at Janet's head. Yeah, because they could have had the arrow pointing toward Janet's crotch and it'd be Brad's eyes like making a a look at her stomach, her, (laughs) her lower nether regions, you know. But no, it's coming from Brad's waistline up to Janet's face. And it's intersecting the heart, which I interpret that as Brad confusing his love of Janet with his lust of Janet. Mm -hmm. And also at that time, if you were Catholic Episcopalian, your belief system 
says that you save yourself for marriage. So Brad is thinking, okay, if I feel these feelings of lust toward her, that must mean we are meant to get married and like settle down together and, and spend the rest of our lives together. So the first time I saw Rocky Horror, I felt like the proposal was very sudden. Like we've just met these two characters. We don't know how they are in rea reality. We're seeing them at like an event mm -hmm. with high school. It's like a high school reunion. Almost, you know? yeah, because it's their high school friends. Mm -hmm. He likes the idea of companionship and he likes the idea of someone like cooking him meals. So yeah, I have the ring in my pocket. Like, let, let's do it. <laughs> let's do it. And if you look at the billboard, there's other like hearts drawn down in the bottom right mm -hmm. corner. So it's like, it's, it's almost graffiti. as if he sees the graffiti and it's like, hmm, this seems to be a romantic spot because yes. other people drew hearts here. Other people have proclaimed their love here. But I just want to introduce the idea that if Brad did, yes, if he saw the graffiti on the billboard, he has the idea to graffiti and he doesn't run toward the billboard with the other graffiti. To graffiti, he runs in a different direction. We'll, we'll get there. <laughs> <laughs> so this movie doesn't outright say that they're in Ohio. Um, it could be any Denton. There's 18 mm -hmm. of them in America. Uh -huh. But um, from Janet's newspaper, it's a Cleveland newspaper. Um, the Plain Dealer. Yeah, The Plain Dealer. <laughs> it's a real newspaper with a fake like headline on it, but... It does confirm they're in Ohio, but it's intentional that they could have been in any small town anywhere in the United States at this time, but they are American. And I want to point out that Denton Home of the Happiness billboard might be the only billboard in town. It might be the only church in town. Mm -hmm. It might be the only cemetery in town. Yep. The fact that there are that many graffitied hearts over there <laughs> means it's a hot spot to teenagers for some reason. That gives you an idea of the limited availability of like entertainment in the town and a like there's not a movie theater. And it know? also tells you that these are your everyday average small town American kids. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yes, I agree. So they're purposefully avoiding eye contact right now. When Brad purposefully turns to Janet with great decision. Hey, Janet. Yes, Brad. She looks him directly in the eyes because she... Okay, Janet, I she think is it's coming. the smartest person in the entire uh, cast. Like, I think she knows what's going on at every turn and she has really good intuition and women at that time and uh sometimes or a lot of times women present day their intuition is ignored and written off as um, as emotion but janet totally set this up she caught the bouquet she set up the idea of like, wow, it's so nice to like, it would be nice if I were Mrs. 
Bradley J. Majors, <laughs> you know? And that is what inspires Brad to go on the thought train of, oh yeah, I was thinking of proposing to <laughs> Janet today. I've got something to say. Sing it, asshole, it's a musical! I really love the... Slutty, slutty... Skillful way. <laughs> you beat the other girls to the bride's bouquet. <laughs> Brad. <laughs> and he while he's making this declaration to her, is making a very casual masturbation gesture with his left hand. If by casual you mean like very overt, <laughs> it's he literally has his hand like cupped, like he's stroking a dick. Janet buries her nose in her bouquet because she's literally rubbing her nose in it. She was planning to get proposed to today. That's why she showed up in that gorgeous purple pantsuit. She was like, if we gotta elope today, we elopen. That's how ready she is to get engaged. So, Damn It Janet is probably the most iconic song of this entire film. Yes, people know this song isolated from the rest of the film. And I, I wanna say it's because people try watching it one time and they either fall asleep or turn it off after Hot Patootie and can only best remember Damn It Janet because it is iconic, but it's also musically the most simplistic of the entire film. And even the, the rhyming scheme. Oh my gosh, the rhyming scheme. What do you, what, what do you mean? rhyming scheme he Brad literally repeats rhymes. it with it <laughs> over, over and, over, and over and over and over so yeah i'm just thinking i'm thinking my dream proposal right if i were if i were gonna take such a downgrade in my name change my identity and try to level up in status with another person um, it would be nice if it's like, hey, remember that trip we took that one time and it was so romantic and I looked in your eyes and I knew that was when I wanted to marry you because I knew I wanted to travel with you forever. Or, I mean, I guess he kind of gets to it because he talks about seeing her in Dr. Scott's class for the first time. Yeah. But he also tells her that it's really, it's really hard dating her. Yeah, because the, <laughs> the river is deep and the road is long, my friend. <laughs> uh, but we will get further into the uh, metaphors of this, this rock and roll send-up <laughs> that, you know, Richard O'Brien was trying to make a rock and roll musical. This is, uh, as you were saying, standalone Iconic, legendary. Yes. And, uh, but I also want to talk about, Barry. like I said early, yeah, my crush, <laughs> my man crush. I, so we were discussing like the possibility of when, you know, conventions come back and I don't know how I would respond to meeting Barry Bostwick. 
You know, like I the biggest sweetheart. Oh my gosh, Katie's met Barry Bonds. <laughs> yes, I met him at the premiere for uh, FDR American Badass, which is a hilarious film. If you haven't seen it, please go watch it. It is so funny. We should watch it and do it as a mini episode for our Patreon. Yes, I love that movie. I think it is so funny. Yes, but oh he gosh. is he plays FDR in that film, and I got to meet him and. He is the sweetest thing on the face of the planet. I believe it. Like, I, so, you know, in studying Janet, I watch his performance very closely too. And he has such a quiet performance that I think sometimes people think Brad is boring or um, a generic white guy. (laughs) And it's not. He's... I think a young adult in the 70s questioning his sexuality and just because he's questioning his sexuality doesn't make him bisexual even. Like he's just questioning. Yeah. And that translates in Barry's performance of him that he's very reserved. He's very methodical. He's very science-based like he you wishes can tell that he plots out his actions like three uh-huh. steps ahead uh-huh he does not like uncertainty um which i think we see that in how he acts in the castle later mm-hmm. so uh barry bostwick was born in san mateo california he is currently 75 years old currently still on the festival circuit um, he's a dreamy six four, <laughs> um, and at time of filming, he was thirty years old. Uh, he was single. He didn't get married until nineteen eighty seven. So he, after doing this film, didn't jump into any relationships, uh, and then he divorced in 91 and then remarried again in 1993 but he has two kids now that um (laughs) when he talks about how his family responds (laughs) to rocky horror he says my wife has never gotten into it my kids weren't so happy with it i was a new york actor who did a lot of off-broadway and weird things Speaking of Mm off-Broadway, so Barry got his MFA in acting from NYU, 1968. Okay. We got a big dreamer here. Mm -hmm. And he got his big break as the original Danny Zuko in Greece. Wait, 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 wait. I want you to say that one more time for the virgins. He was the original Danny Zuko. The original Danny Zuko in Greece was Barry Bostwick. I have watched this man... And I'm, I'm sure I had that knowledge in my brain somewhere, but that's two iconic teen roles in cult musicals. Like, yeah, that is insane. And he was nominated for the Tony Award for that performance. He didn't get it. Um, but he, can we just talk about how beautiful he was as Danny Zuko? Because oh, he is a dreamboat. We'll put the picture on on the blog spot and on Instagram. Oh yes. Dreamboat. Wow. But like that is, it's crazy because also he talks about, 
you know, the remake of Rocky Horror, and he compares it to seeing all of the different productions of Grease that have occurred over time. Mm -hmm. And he says it's always, they always want to make it more colorful, bigger than life, flashier, new songs, things are always a little different. Uh, But overall, he feels enthusiastic about both, you know, Grease having a legacy and Rocky Horror having a legacy because the music and message needs to be heard and seen by new generations and it'll gather a whole new group of people to it. I, I won't say how he felt about the remake specifically. <laughs> <laughs> I just think it's so funny that this is like his most well-known role is uh-huh. Brad, uh-huh. but he won a Tony. Yep. Like, he is a stage actor through and through. Yes. But he's best known for his, like, first movie role that he ever did. Yes, first movie role. So, like, then we started to think about, like, again, the remake. And the casting decisions started to make a lot of more sense because the cast they went with were the Barry Bostwicks and Susan Sarandons of their time. Like, a young theater kid who's hot on Broadway, hot on the award circuit. He had buzz to his name. Mm -hmm. And if anything, they probably anticipated it to be a much bigger reaction. Like I bet they thought a ton of theater people would come to see Rocky Horror Picture Show and it just didn't get distributed. Since he's been on Broadway, since he did Brad in 75, He's been on a million TV shows, I think. Yeah, just about a million. Just about a million. Uh, His biggest credits are like Spin City. Oh my gosh, we have to watch all of Phineas and Ferb, (laughs) I guess, because there's, I guess the creators are huge Rocky horror people. And like there are references and... uh, Cast cameos galore. So, you know, he's he plays Grandpa Clyde on Phineas and Ferb. His movie credits include, like Katie was mentioning, FDR American Badass. Uh, he was in the Hannah Montana movie. Weekend at Bernie's 2. Teen Beach movie. Teen Beach movie. But his career has definitely been marked by... The Rocky Horror Picture Show, like a lot of those acting credits are him doing, you know, he's a he's a well-used actor. But a lot of those credits are from Rocky Horror episodes because yes. he does cameos on almost every single one. Yes, he did the Glee cameo really famously. Mm-hmm. And I think most recently was the Goldbergs. They did a Rocky Horror episode, I think <gasps> it was last year, and he played the teacher in oh that episode. Gosh. I need to watch it because I love the Goldbergs too. I think that's <laughs> that's a really good um, modern TV sitcom. But he, as far as uh, meaning goes, as far as what Rocky Horror as criminologist says lacks meaning, we're trying to find the meaning to this. And he does not believe, from what I could find from my the interviews that I, I read through of his, he does not believe the LGBT undertones were anyone's intent when they were filming the movie. He said, 
It's just sex, drugs, and rock and roll. You can't go wrong with that. Every generation is drawn to that kind of freedom and to that pure enjoyment and fun. So spoken for him, he thinks like, it's like a party. Spoken like a true Danny Zuko. Oh, my. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but he's all for anybody's interpretations of the movie. Like, clearly he has a deep love of the film or he wouldn't still be doing cameo appearances on modern day television shows. He loves the community in general. Mm -hmm. He really does. He shows up to almost all of the convention circuits um, doing appearances. Mm -hmm. He's lovingly called Uncle Barry. Uncle Everybody Barry. calls him Uncle Barry. He <laughs> loves being called Uncle Barry. And he says, I love Uncle Barry. I just don't want to be creepy Uncle Barry. <laughs> And he's not, from my experience, he's not creepy Uncle Barry. He is very sweet yes. Uncle Barry. So he thinks Brad is the most underappreciated character in the show. And he thinks that the lookalike contests for Brad are so great because you can gender bend. And Katie has so many photos performing as Brad I that do. we will post, but it's totally right. He loves the like legacy that it's, that it's inspired, that it's inspired all these young kids to keep his performance alive, literally, because <laughs> you beat for beat learn what his performance is. And not just will his performance live on in film forever. Rocky Horror is going to be one of those things in 200 years. People still are able to like converse to each other about it because there's so much word of mouth around Rocky Horror. Not only that, but every single time anybody says Janet or damn it in 200 years, everybody's going to have a callback for it. <laughs> And he says that's his personal quote. Like, that's what he's fine with that being what he's known for, Barry. And he's like, I'm going to be known for the rest of my life. And I'm always going to be saying to people, damn it, Janet. And he is quoted saying that lovingly. Again, he definitely was uh, impacted by this film that his then, the rest of his career, it was a central theme for mm -hmm. the rest of his career. So when asked what Brad would be doing today, present day, Barry thinks he would have a radio talk show that would be ultra conservative and he would be the Rush Limbaugh of Akron, Ohio. <laughs> Which, honestly, I can see it because we're going to go over it a little bit later. Brad has kind of an affinity for politics. Oh, yes, that's true. And it's also interesting commentary of men question who question their sexuality in the 70s because I think men today that are questioning their sexuality... Um, in 50 years, this might be a weird time capsule of sorts, uh, my prediction right now, um, but in 50 years, maybe Rocky Horror will be considered conservative, you know? I don't <laughs> think so. I think it'll always be... French. Uh, yes. I think it'll always be a little edgy, 
because the themes are greater than just identifying your sexuality. It's also like a morality story. It's a story of good versus evil. It's a story of communicating. But like men today who are questioning their sexuality, I think are being more encouraged to embrace that questioning as opposed to push it inward. Right. And Brad definitely, his character ends on a question mark. Their entire relationship ends on a question mark. Mm -hmm. But we'll get to it. They're just getting engaged right now. <laughs> We're like... jumping ahead. <laughs> <laughs> so Brad starts running away from Janet in the opposite direction. And he says, The river was deep, but I swam it. Janet. The future is ours, so let's plan it. Janet. So please don't tell me to can it. Janet. I've one thing to say, and that's, damn it, Janet, I love you. So let's <laughs> break this down a little bit. Yes. First off, the river was deep, but I swam it. So what river, man? Are you trying to say that it's really hard to date you, but I made it through? <laughs> We're on the other side of that trouble now. The trouble being my ability to keep it in my pants. Uh, I've, I've, I've waded through my uh, lustful feelings now and we're to the other side of that. <laughs> and I should get my prize now, okay? I think it's interesting that he says they should plan it. Plan it? Plan it, schman it. Plan Janet it, Weiss. Plan it, Janet. <laughs> It's, it's, there's something there. I haven't found it yet, but there's something there. We then are, he's, he's running away from her. He's trying to propose to her. And what men typically do in that situation is um, become so permanent where they're standing that they kneel on the ground. So he's, he's running her back through the graveyard back to the church. So at this point in the shadow cast, just to give a little bit of stage directions, Brad and Janet have been center stage. They've waved off Ralph and Betty. Usually we'll have either, uh, at one of my home theaters, we have a ramp that goes down the right side or there will be stairs. I miss that ramp. Oh, the, the ramp is, I ideal for a great Scott, but you will walk downstage right to the ramp, stairs, whatever, so that Janet can chase Brad back to the church. He will run and stop and put his hands on her. And he says that he's only got one thing to say but he doesn't. He has like a whole song full of things to say and they're all cliche metaphors that speak to their inexperience. <laughs> One more thing that I yes. want to point out before we move on to the next section, that we have that American Gothic yes. little screen. Right in the very beginning of the song, mm -hmm. you've got that perfect match to the American Gothic painting. A perfect reference. Yeah, 100%. We will analyze our interpretations uh, when we see it another time. Um, 
a couple of segments from now, but at the time being, we can associate that image with that portrait, which is, it's named for the style of church that is behind them in the background of the image. And it's not a husband-wife couple, as a lot of people uh, interpret it. It is the artist's dentist and sister who were the models for that portrait. And it was intended to be a, a father-daughter pair, which sets up that this is the family at maybe that lives at this church, maybe on the grounds, and they maintain the land, they maintain the cemetery. There may be the mortuary people. I don't know. We're gonna analyze the portrait further later. Let's get back into this proposal. He runs up the church steps and Janet's just kind of observing him do whatever it is that he needs to do right now, <laughs> I guess. Brad needs a moment and needs to express his feelings. Um, and she tries to kiss him. She leans in and she's trying to make it a romantic moment. He just keeps running away from her. And I think it's interesting that he doesn't kiss her then because if Brad's whole intention of getting engaged and getting married to Janet is to get laid, like, dude, she might be just willing right now to try. Like, she's trying to kiss him. <laughs> They're not even through their proposal yet. And she's like, sure, yeah, 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 come kiss me, kiss me, kiss me, kiss me. And she talks about it later in Toucha Toucha. Uh, about how she's very sexually repressed and she too doesn't really know what she wants sexually because she's never done it before. I don't know. I think it's interesting that he... He runs backwards <laughs> up the stairs. Well, he said... Wait, okay. Read the line. The road was long, but I ran it. Backwards. That's literally the <laughs> That's literally the callback. <laughs> and he literally runs backward to the steps of the church. He says, There's a fire in my heart and you fan it. Janet. If there's one fool for you, then I am it. And he produces a piece of chalk from out of nowhere. So not only did he bring the ring, uh -huh. he also brought a piece of chalk. Uh-huh. Because he has, like, this thing planned out. But he still tells Ralph. Who knows? <laughs> Did men in the 70s carry chalk around with them? Like, where does he get chalk from? That's just such a random writing <laughs> utensil. I think it's just so silly. I almost feel like it's what production had. Um, something that was wipeable because, well, that is interesting, too. It's erasable. It's not... A Sharpie, he didn't bring a can of paint. Yeah. He didn't bring spray paint. No, just a piece of chalk. Just a piece of chalk. 
He's just because he wants to proclaim his love and he wants to deface something, but he doesn't mm-hmm. want it to be permanent because that's bad. Yeah, and he doesn't know what permanent love is maybe. Like it's a declaration of his love for her. We've just seen a graffitied billboard in the cemetery. If Brad has gotten the smart idea to graffiti a declaration of love, he could have ran in the direction of the billboard, but he decides instead to temporarily deface the front entrance of a church. (laughs) Something else that I thought was really interesting in this scene Mm -hmm. is Riff Raff and Magenta are standing in the background and they're like cleaning the railing in front of the church. Mm -hmm. They're observing. Um, But Riff is just deadlocked, like staring at Brad and Janet. Mm -hmm. Like he is very intently watching them until Brad turns around to write on the church door. Then he like immediately turns around and throws his pitchfork. Like, oh, (laughs) nope, I'm doing a thing. No, no, no. It's like, (sighs) again, some asshole riding on my church door. And he he literally pitches that fork. He does. Into the hay bale. He chucks it. And as soon as, no sooner does Brad write it on the door, do Riffid Magenta immediately erase it. Brad hasn't even pulled the ring out of his pocket yet. And the proclamation of love is already getting uh, erased. away. Yeah. Right. If I were performing as Janet at this point, um, I'm watching the film, honestly, for when she will run up the church stairs and my Brad will spin me around, lift me. I do a little bit of a jump so they don't have to work that hard um, to spin around and make sure my hat literally doesn't fall off my head because it's about a size too small. And as Brad, I think this is like the peak of Brad's energy level throughout the show. Mm-hmm. Like this is the most effort that Brad puts into anything i think throughout the entire show (laughs) (laughs) is running up the stairs and doing this little tiny lift oh yeah no because you're right he takes the lazy route later and goes up the elevator and then he is on his back uh literally later (laughs) so like he doesn't do any hard work um i want to can we talk about their costumes for a second yeah Oh, oh my gosh, because I meant, so I mentioned my hat is a couple sizes too small, uh, but that's because I thrifted the best thing I could find on Etsy, probably, or eBay. I might have I looked on eBay. The internet is such an awesome tool that shadow casts in the 70s, 80s, 90s, and 2000s did not have at their disposal. So what people used to... And still do, like, people who are talented at seamstressing and sewing will still make and produce their own costumes to Shadowcast perform in. But I got my whole purple pantsuit as one piece I purchased from a seller on Etsy, who I'll link her Etsy shop on our blog spot. Everything else were... Items that I use later in the show, essentially, like the nude pantyhose. 
I have on beginning to end and then I have my like my white they're not heels I used to have white heels that were pretty uh, screen accurate but then I ditched those in favor of some sandals that are a little bit easier to move around in because I'll end up wearing them for the rest of the show um, so in the film, Janet's wearing black shoes at this point, but mm-hmm. I know very few shadow casters who actually go from black shoes to white shoes, just mm-hmm. because changing shoes is such a pain in the butt, especially these little Mary Jane heels that she wears. Mm-hmm. The straps mm-hmm. are just not good for quick changes. So I do the same thing. I wear my white shoes throughout the entire, um, film. I will also have my pink gingham underneath because the quick change uh, that's coming up. It's very quick. It's very quick. And Brad has no opportunity to have a costume under a costume like Janet does. Like when I get ready for Janet, it's basically I do a layer by layer of how I will be getting undressed throughout the film. And that means I have my black floor show panties on at the very bottom of it all. Um, But this way I can remove the pantsuit very easily, very quickly in that quick change moment and uh, just change into uh, Janet's pink gingham outfit, which we'll profile in our next episode. So for myself... um... But, oh my gosh, Brad's costume. (laughs) The Brad's, when they're doing this quick change, you need to... Um, move out of their way because they need to run to their suitcase and take every item of clothing off. <laughs> <laughs> what, what is everything that compiles Brad's costume? So for myself, I, um, I pl- perform as Brad pretty often and I've done Janet, but only once. <laughs> um, I made my own Janet costume because mm-hmm. I was too lazy and broke to... No, no, no. not lazy not absolutely not lazy that takes so much work and dedication and time and skill that I do not have an inkling of in my body but I didn't want that to stop me from performing which is why I invested in my pieces but you did the smart thing which was teach myself how to sew. Yes. <laughs> yes. And, and you now have the skill to make costumes for other people. Like that was one of the first uh, interactions we had with each other was I was talking to our cast lead. And when I was compiling my Janet costume, he was like, reach out to Katie. She made her own Columbia jacket. She made her own floor show corsets. She's made her entire Janet costume. Like... It's a skill. If you are able to do that, I my, I tip my Janet hat to you, my tiny Janet hat to you. <laughs> but um, on the other hand, my Brad costume is completely thrifted from the wedding scene all the way through the uh, the rest of it. I mean, the rest of it, the whole thing. Not my floor show, but oh yes, floor show is. <laughs> oh boy, when we get to floor show. But oh, I'm excited to talk about that. I thrifted a an old tuxedo jacket mm-hmm. and some black pants. Mm-hmm. I found a women's tuxedo shirt. Okay. So it's actually fitted to me, which is really nice, and it's not baggy. And that's good because 
like Brad is tall and long and thin. So like having that kind of fitted shirt works. Yeah. If you have a baggy shirt, it kind of looks out of place because like she said, Brad is tall and thin. He's Mm -hmm. not going to wear baggy stuff. Right. He's definitely a put together guy, except for the (laughs) cummerbund tie situation. My theory is that Brad has also himself thrifted this tuxedo because (laughs) his bow tie and his cummerbund are different plaids. His his cummerbund is black and red plaid. Mm -hmm. And it's like standard. Yeah, it's just regular black and red uh, plaid. And then his bow tie is mostly black and red plaid, but it also has yellow and blue in it. And Mm -hmm. that is one thing that absolutely drives me insane about Brad's costume. That is... So interesting to me, probably for production costs, it was thrifted and they found a tie and a cummerbund that were close enough and didn't think people would be pausing the movie (laughs) on the second interval to uh, deeply analyze every decision that the costume designers made. (laughs) But if I want to interpret that the bigger swatch of fabric is exactly how it looks. It's a plaid, it's red and black and basic. Having a hint of color in his tie tells me that Brad, he kind of likes color, like he wishes he could wear more color. But yeah, he's got that full tux, he's got white socks on. White socks. White tidy whities So (laughs) we know before we even see his underwear that they match. He's wearing white white socks. (laughs) And it's funny that, Janet wears two different shoes because Brad does as well. He's wearing Mm. black loafers during the wedding scene and then brown loafers for the rest of the film. But I just wear brown loafers Mm -hmm. throughout because I'm sorry. If Brad's going to wear white socks with a tux, I can wear brown loafers with a black suit. Yes. Like, that's an excellent balance you've you've decided for your costume. And that's what creative shadow casting is, is like... Okay, I'm gonna like fudge a little bit on this thing, but I'm gonna make sure that this other element to the costume is exactly right because we'll talk about Brad's other jacket that he wears for the mm-hmm. rest of the movie um, a little bit in the next segment, I believe. Uh, but those patches on his jacket can also be interpreted. He's got glasses, he's a kind of nerdy guy. And he's got like a clean cut, basic male haircut, I guess. It's just short. And then um, Janet's got kind of like a loose curl going. So I know you've, when you did Janet, you wore a wig. Yes, I can actually link the wig. I found it on a website and it is just about perfect. (sighs) Yes. So Brad has picked Janet up. He swings her around. He kneels down finally we get him in one spot (laughs) and he produces the engagement ring box and says to her here's a ring to prove that i'm no joker okay but he later says he wants to wait to pull out the aces until the time is right (laughs) i'm just setting up that there's maybe a card theme that we can interpret a little later. Is Brad a gambler? <gasps> Maybe. <laughs> I like that. 
And he's he's telling to her, like, yeah, I'm no joke. I look at this ring. It's it's a diamond. And as soon as Janet sees it, she yeets that purse and that bouquet out of there. They're gone. Like they're not in frame. <laughs> they're just completely gone. We have no idea where they went. The first time I shadow cast uh Janet, my Brad after the fact was like, Hey, you did did you mean to have the bouquet like through the rest of the of the scene and i was like absolutely not i need to find out when she ditches that thing and it's when she sees the the ring ring. which is interesting (laughs) because it's her purse it's her what holds her identification maybe her wallet um and then the bouquet which is like the promise of getting engaged she ditches that for the symbol of the engagement ring, which I think speaks to women of that time. They did not think that careers in science were available for them. They thought you assessed your value to the size of a diamond and waited for the right guy to come around and show it to you. So the church bells peal, Riff Raff and Magento open the doors and enter the church with the door closing behind them. Brad says to her, continuing their proposal, There's three ways that love can grow. That's good, bad, or mediocre. Why is this part of his proposal? Yeah, I'm like, why are you saying that your love may be bad or mediocre? And he doesn't specify, exactly, he doesn't specify which one it is. He gives like a little shrug during it too, like, oh well. It's like it could be good. Uh, but it also could be bad. And, oh, God, what if it's just, like... Okay. Okay. And this he's saying this after he's just stared at the ring for a second because Janet is so excited that he then... It's like he's like, is this even a good enough ring? <laughs> like, he looks a little concerned for a second. So he goes to put the ring on Janet's mm-hmm. finger and drops it. And they both get on the ground and scramble Another to pick bad it up. omen. <laughs> Another bad omen. Oh my gosh, and I didn't mention it earlier. The song starts with thunder. Like, we're just getting bad omen after bad omen. He's... Can't he... His hands are shaking so much trying to put the ring onto her hand. He's so unsure of the decision he's making that he drops the ring. She ends up picking the ring up and sliding it onto her finger herself. And how, how do you spell slut? Oh, J-A-N-E-T, <laughs> I love you so. And she pushes him out of the way because now that the ring is on her finger, all that matters in her mind is getting into the church. Um, instead of, I don't know, they could start like walking to their car at this point. Like they could leave. <laughs> Why are they still hanging around the church? Um, She's transfixed, abandons her purse, abandons her man, uh, is hypnotized. The stage directions is that she's transfixed and hypnotized by this ring. Brad follows her in and she sings, it's nicer than Betty Monroe had. Oh, Brad. Now we're engaged and I'm so glad. Oh, Brad. That you met mom and you know dad. Oh, Brad. I've uh, one thing to say and that's Brad, 
I'm mad for you too. That's not love. That is not a declaration of love. She sounds so uncertain of how to respond to possibly Brad's first declaration of love to her. We don't know. But she does not... Her one thing to say is not, damn it, Brad, I love you too. Because she could. But the other things she says in this verse is comparing her diamond ring to Betty Monroe's diamond ring and... That she's glad that he knows her parents? Yeah. And like how we're responding right now is how Riff and Magenta and Columbia are responding. Which is just dull surprise. Dull surprise. They are, they could not have a more vague look on their face. And like, I don't know, if we saw a proposal happening on the side of the road, we'd be like, oh my gosh, that's so cute. Aww. They're getting hitched. Like, they could not be less interested, less excited, less enthused about these two straight people getting engaged in front of them. And Riff and Magenta spin around the wedding bouquets to the spray-painted backside of them, which are black flowers. (laughs) And uh, now Brad and Janet begin walking down the aisle together in a type of funeral procession. Um, It's awkward. She says, oh, Brad. Oh, damn it. I'm mad. Oh, Janet. For you. I love you too. Uh, I I didn't say that I loved you. (laughs) This is awkward. Uh, there's, ooh, ooh, I know. There's one thing that we could do. And that's, that's, <laughs> that's have sex, right? To make sure that you guys are sexually compatible and yeah. that you should get married. That's and... what Janet's thinking. She's like, I'm mad about you. Her definition of mad is lust. She feels lustful for him. And his one thing left to do. Is go see the man who began it. One we met in his science exam. It made me give you the eye and then panic. Now, I have one thing to say, and that's, damn it, Janet, I love you. How many times has he said that he has one thing to say? He has one thing to say, and it's that he loves her. And instead of, like, yes, yeah, celebrating their engagement, going and getting a hotel room down the street and hooking up for the first time, seeing if they like each other out of a tuxedo and a pantsuit, <laughs> you know, see what's underneath there. His idea is to, like almost in maturity level regress. Like he wants to go back to his high school teacher and he wants to make sure that his high school teacher thinks it's a good idea because he's still not sure if it's a good idea. Meanwhile, in the background, we see Riff, Magenta, and Mm -hmm. Columbia bringing in a little tiny, like child-sized coffin Uh and they set it up in front of the altar. And it's also... So there's also an American flag on the altar. It's not on the side of the altar that would now be out of frame. It's behind Riff, Magenta, and Columbia who are standing behind a tiny coffin. This image is now a direct frame repeat of when Brad and Janet are standing in front of the Denton Home of Happiness sign. 
Uh, we have Brad on the left foreground. We have Janet on the right foreground. I think the church family are warning Brad and Janet. Brad turns left after they've walked down the altar. He's taken a left turn, and now he's deciding that they need to go see their high school teacher all of a sudden. They're warning him, like, hey, that may not be a good idea. <laughs> See, like, I have a theory about this coffin. Tell me. I have my tinfoil wrapped real tight around my head for this <laughs> one. Uh, my theory is that the coffin contains one of the first attempts at Rocky. Okay, so you you think it is the that it is deliberately Riff, Magenta, and Columbia. Do you think they live there full time, or do you think they've just you think they've just come this one time to bury a failed experiment? So I'm we're going deeper into my conspiracy theory. Please, please. Like we mentioned last episode, there are Transylvanians visible in the wedding photo and in that scene mm -hmm. of the guests at the wedding. Mm -hmm. Now, mm -hmm. if we're going off of the entire Rocky multiverse, <laughs> I'm going to include the sequel that was never made, Revenge of the Old Queen, where Transylvanians live amongst humans. Mm -hmm. And I'm going and to say- And they've been like stationed in towns yes, everywhere. Exactly. Uh -huh. So I'm going to say that these are actual Transylvanians and that they're not just double cast, that they are actually the Transylvanians that we see later on. Okay, 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 okay. I like this idea. So then do you think that Frankenfurter decided to go to land his castle there or house? Uh, there's no way to know. There's no way to find out. But maybe Frankenfurter has been sent and stationed here and Riff Raff, Magenta, and Columbia happen to be the Transylvanians that have to like help him in whatever his mission was yes that bingo. landed him in, Den in denton so he is the prince of transylvania okay and they're like his in servants. the revenge of the queen in the, yeah, the revenge of the old queen yes. the script that unfortunately never saw the light of day <laughs> you can read it online we might uh link it sometime in our in our blog spot maybe at the end of the show um but it's also based on the premise of other maybe spoilers or foreshadowing that we're going to get a little later in this segment. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I like that idea that, that Transylvanians are anywhere and everywhere and they could be going to church with you. They could be going to the weekend orgy. Yes. But my personal tinfoil hat conspiracy is that all of the failed Rockies or the failed creations are the medusa speaker holders in <laughs> Frank's laboratory. I do love that because there are behind the scenes photos of Tim Curry as Frank, like leg up over like humping the statues. Uh -huh. So I do like that idea as well. Brad suggests that they go to Dr. Scott's. She runs into his arms because Janet just wants to be next to him. We've watched her this whole song chase him through a graveyard, back into the church, down an aisle. She just wants to be, like, hugged by the guy. Mm -hmm. And he pushes her away. Like, they hug briefly. He pushes her away. And then they end kneeling in front of the altar. We hear Janet. She finally 
does return the expression of affection. And I don't know, I think she's convinced that that is love now, like through the course of that song. He's made a good case for their relationship. She's like, you know what? Yeah, okay, I love you too. We're, we're getting hitched. Okay, sounds good. That's what we do now. And now she's into it. And even though she did not necessarily love him at the beginning of the song, she does love him by the end of the song. Or has at least convinced herself that she does. Yes. And he, I mean, it's a wacky proposal, but it's also, like we said, it is legendary and it's because he's just so sweet and even though we know they are naive kids, we have hope for their relationship because at least they're like sweet to each other. Mm -hmm. At least there's something there that like he, like Brad says, he saw her across the room and there was a spark there. He's trying to, they're both trying. I think they're trying. <laughs> so they're knelt down in front of this cross on mm -hmm. the altar and they give each other like the tiniest little peck. Little peck. <laughs> little tiny pet. And then the cross above splits optically into four corners, revealing a totally different place. We have a, a symbol defining religion that is getting sectioned off and divided, and it's replaced with the image of the wedding photograph that we've just, we just took. We just took that wedding photograph. There is a big red circle around riffraff on the right side and a big red arrow pointing to Frankenpastor, <laughs> which highlights that the character we're getting this information, we're about to get this information from, um, he, he recognizes them. Yes, he recognizes them. Mahogany bookcases, a large desk with a prominent globe of the world, a well-padded armchair that has its back to the camera. It swings around, revealing the criminologist. He is in his smoking jacket, smoking a cigarette in its long cigarette holder, speaking directly to us. I would like, if I may, <laughs> to take you on a strange journey. <laughs> so it almost feels like... This movie's so weird. <laughs> Like, I feel bad for folks who don't know what they're walking into when they see this movie the first time, because first they're assaulted with singing lips at them, which makes no sense. And then they get straightforward narrative about these two people that we are now supposed to care about. And now we have a guy breaking the fourth wall and addressing that he is the person who's putting on this show for us. He's the one that is um, the ringmaster, if you will. I do think he has been documenting affairs for a really, really long time. I agree. Be and it's, this character is reminiscent of like old crime films and mm -hmm. old like sci-fi films with that narrator mm -hmm. uh, or criminologist character where it's like a separate character. You don't always see them, but they're the person who is above it all and who knows it all. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. they see everything. They're kind of omnipotent. We 
should feel a sense of security seeing him because like now we know there are no stakes for us as an audience. We are now just observing Brad and Janet's story as it's unfolding. The criminologist crosses to the bookshelf and selects a dossier. We see the title, The Denton Affair. Um, also in this frame, uh, in the top left corner, you can see a pull-down menu that's going to get a lot of use in a, in a couple of numbers. We also see that there are tomes and tomes of this type of book that he's taking off the wall. He also has a book on marital law in the background. Maybe he's writing the book on marital law and he's documenting every affair that occurs because it's the Denton affair. But we found a fun little shadow cast <laughs> named the Denton affair in Cincinnati, Ohio. So hey, Ohio. I wonder how close it is to Denton. They perform every other Saturday night year round. Their Instagram handle is at Denton Affair. Um, so once Shadowcasts get going again, you know where your community is, Ohio. And a lot of casts right now are getting very creative with how they perform in times of pandemic. So check out their Instagram. Um, I encourage you guys to check out any Instagrams of your local Shadowcast because a lot of folks are coming up with really creative outlets. Yeah, they Rocky. just did a big TikTok show, like countrywide, maybe even worldwide, with people from all different casts. And they raised, I think, $1,000 for rain. That's nuts. Yeah. Which is so, great. That's awesome. Keep an eye on the internet and see how you can support your uh, community. Yes. Uh, and in this Denton affair, he starts flipping through pages of the photographs that have been taken at the wedding, but they're not just the photographs that we know have been taken by the photographers we've seen. Who is taking these photographs of Brad and Janet? Like, they're just these two ordinary, normal kids walking around church, like, does that mean the photographers that were taking the photo, the wedding photograph, they stayed behind and they were taking photos of Brad and Janet? It's a very good question. And it's really weird because there's like ticker tape that goes across each of these photos that mm -hmm. has little notes. And luckily for us, we have a 4K TV. <laughs> and we have to shout out Sean Hall Designs. Yes. Because the internet, again, amazing. He has digitally restored what he can gather from his obsessive uh, scanning of that document from what you can see in uh, the Blu-ray. And we'll link that for sure in our blog spot because it's, it's awesome. It's awesome. And it gave us more clarity on the theories that we kind of introduce in this segment. Um, so we will definitely link to that. And you're right, there's ticker tape across them summarizing the action. Yeah, so on the wedding photo, mm -hmm. across it, it says, note, minister and two attendants in back of shot. So it's literally telling us what we see in the picture. And mm -hmm. it's pointing out these little weird things that yeah. we've definitely noticed ourselves. And then we also see a photograph of 
Brad and Janet kissing, which means that the photographer followed them into the church, which we don't see any of that in the frame. It's very possible that a Transylvanian photographer snuck into the church. Uh, the ticker tape on their engagement photo says, Brad and Janet seal their contractual arrangements to be married. Note, coffin can be seen in the background. Uh, he continues to flip the page. Next we see Brad's headshot, which we read from the ticker tape is, uh, it's a photograph that's provided by his mother. <laughs> it seemed a fairly ordinary night when Brad Majors and his fiancée... Well, his name is Bradley J. Majors. Yes, it is. Asshole... Extraordinaire. Extraordinaire. <laughs> and asshole is the comment, uh, the blah, blah. asshole is the callback that audiences will do at key asshole Brad moments. Like if you call out asshole every time you see him on screen, nobody's going to get the movie and they're going to think that it lacks meaning. But this is an iconic moment where the audience will shout asshole. asshole. In the Sean Hall Designs zip file PDF, he has transcribed the statements, which we... We can't truly read them in 4K on the TV. We really did try, but from what we can see in the actual shot that mm -hmm. we paused and attempted to read, mm -hmm. these statements are accurate from yeah, what we can tell. Yeah, the transcription is, is pretty spot on. And Katie brought up a good point that we see multiple pages to the statement. So I want us to confidently say that I believe the transcription of the first page is accurate on the site. The rest of it is up for interpretation. It would mean that someone who was on the production transcribed literally what, when we read it, it's, it does either sound like found fiction or honestly, it could have been uh, like intern on the set asking Barry Bostwick and Susan Sarandon to literally give a statement on what they think Brad and Janet would have said mm -hmm. over the course of the night. Um, it also could have been Richard O'Brien wrote those statements and had a plan with those statements, which if you know these sequels, they're kind of totally based on the information that as an audience member just gets flashed for just a moment. So take that as you will. If you want to deeply interpret it, you're also probably the person who wants to see shock treatment and read the sequel script. Uh, otherwise, you can just see it as a statement. But Brad's Bradley J. Major's statement acknowledges uh, that he recognized Frank from the church. Uh, he plays aloof tour of, uh, regarding the events of the evening and pretends to feign his ignorance of what we see as him exploring his sexuality later. We also see Brad's fiancée, Janet Weiss. Two young, ordinary, healthy kids. Full name, Janet Margaret Weiss. Slut Incorporated. Uh, <laughs> same idea as asshole. Like, when Janet is acting particularly slutty around a tank later on, you could totally call her a slut. From her statements, 
we can gain that she's 22 years old at time of uh, the statement. Of the statement. And she is possibly pregnant at the end of the movie, which... Yes. So it's not for sure said in the statement, but at the end of the statement it says, I don't have much of an appetite, mm-hmm. I'm feeling nauseous, and I've gained some weight. So and have I'm we implied that a seed has been laid and like maybe maybe there was a Transylvanian following them around the graveyard and around the, the church and photographing them was to take those photographs to Frank and be like, how does she look for planting a seed? Or, you know, we don't see her have sex with Brad explicitly, but you know, she has an orgy with three different dudes, so... Um, if she did end up pregnant at the end of the, at the end of superheroes, um, is up for you to interpret. So two young, ordinary, healthy kids left Denton that late November evening to visit a Dr. Everett Scott, ex-tutor and now friend to both of them. What does Scott's ticker tape say? Photograph of Dr. Everett Zanuck Scott. Zanuck. <laughs> taken from a photographic portrait taken for the official organization of unidentified flying objects international. Hold on, wait a minute. <laughs> Put a little sci-fi in it. He has a portrait because he's on the chair or he's a board member of the organization of UFOs International. What was he teaching in high school? Science, man. Just science? Yep, regular old science. Regular old science. (laughs) So we tried to read Dr. Scott's statement. (laughs) And it is hilarious because it's literally as if someone phonetically (laughs) spelt a German accent. Literally. It's like lots of Zs and Rs and... And then at the end, it just straight up goes into Latin. Yes, because... Okay, he makes a joke about halfway through that he's going to try really hard to say it in layman's terms so that you don't get confused. And then it turns into gibberish Latin, which is either fan fiction filler and just like copy pasted Latin or literally Dr. Scott just like goes off on a fucking Latin tangent because like either English is not his first language and he naturally goes into that dialect. But but Latin, it's a dead language. Exactly. And we could not garner any meaning from any, <laughs> any translation of the Latin. I just think it's nuts that I've watched this movie so many times. And it says right there on his photograph that he studies aliens. <laughs> so one thing that I really loved, though, from his uh, statement was he tells the story of how he wound up in a wheelchair. Yes, he, he makes this runaround uh, story about how basically he is confined to a wheelchair because he's afraid of slipping on a banana peel again. From what we can gather, right. <laughs> he can still walk. Yes. But he fell on a banana peel, uh-huh. hurt his leg, and now stays in a wheelchair so that he doesn't slip on another banana peel. Which is interesting when you consider Riff Raff's hair shape at the end of the movie. It's a banana. It's a banana. And that's why he's like, <laughs> we, 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 we need to get out of here. I'm <laughs> traumatized by bananas. 
But after we've gotten this overview photo album, just flip pages through, he, uh, the criminologist closes the dossier, rests it on the table. He says, It's true, there were dark storm clouds, heavy, black, pendulous, towards which they were driving. It's true also that the spare tire they were carrying was badly in need of some air. Talk about a bunch of more bad omens. They see the storm and don't drive around the storm. They're driving directly into it. And we get the narrative information that they are driving on the four tires that are on the car currently, but I wouldn't decide to go on a road trip if I knew that my, I didn't have a spare tire. That's something that you basic, yeah, basic check that you have your spare tire and enough gas to get there, you know? And they were in such a rush to get to Dr. Scott that they didn't even make sure they had enough protection for the trip. But they being normal kids and on a night out. But big pause. He's like, they're normal kids. Pause, 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 pause. On a night out. Pause, 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 pause. Yeah, exactly. He is telling us as viewers, it's that easy, guys. They are just like you. They wandered into a normal night out and they like, you know, the people who get drug along to Rocky Horror Picture Show on a Saturday at midnight and have no idea what they're doing. <laughs> They would probably call themselves normal. Well, and they were not going to let a storm spoil the events of their evening. Pause, 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 pause. On a night out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, which illustrates the naivety. They are so reasoning of like, oh, come on, it's Saturday. If we wait until tomorrow, like it may not be a good time. And it's our night out. Who cares if it's raining? Who cares if it's raining? We can, we can still go. It's our night out. No, that's not a good idea. You plan your trip, and if there's a storm, you consider the other routes. You get a map, you either know you have the map and know where you're going, or there's you no at other least option. know a map. <laughs> so there's no you, other option. Yeah, you get so a map you, and you know where you're going. We have iPhones now that will, per, like, automatically redirect us if we make a wrong left turn. They should have planned another route to get to Dr. Scott's if there was such a bad storm. The criminologist then leans forward towards the camera. So if you Menacingly. had any doubt before that he was talking to you as an audience member, mm -hmm. that doubt should be gone. He is breaking the fourth wall. He is talking directly to you. Mm -hmm. And he is address. He's also making himself the god of this movie in being like, I'm going to unfold this for you bit by bit. Oh, it's, you don't get a lot of this, this narrative that he's giving us in a live showing because people are usually talking through his entire monologue, <laughs> but that's like a lot of really juicy information for what we're right about to see and he describes it as 
it was a night out they were going to remember for a very long time. <laughs> if you don't know what that noise is, please watch that section of film. <laughs> and then it does this fantastic transition, dripping the film over the criminologist. We are now in a dark forest. It's raining. It is, it's raining so much that it rained out the criminologist. <laughs> and we see two headlights in the distance, so we know it's a car. And it makes such a fast drive past the camera that we made our best guess on what kind of car Brad owns. Our best guess is it's a 1972 Ford Limited Country Squire mm -hmm. because it has the nice little swoop in the side panel there. The headlights look right. Pretty similar, yeah. It looks pretty, pretty dang close, but if you know which car it is, please tell us because we're that obsessive. Yeah, it's one frame. Yeah, if you are a car enthusiast and you could look at that one frame, we will put it up on our Instagram and our blog spot. And please tell us what that car is. If it's not, if you're a Ford enthusiast and you're like, no, 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 no. those never get flat tires, then correct us. The windshield wiper on this car is working under strain. A torrential rain is pounding on the windscreen. Brad concentrating on his visibility. He's a very focused driver. And Janet is reading her newspaper. And they're both listening to a speech on the radio, which is the Richard Nixon resignation speech, but it's barely audible. So they're not really paying attention. And when we looked into this, Richard O'Brien apparently has said that Brad recorded the Nixon resignation speech for re-listening purposes. <laughs> we had a really hard time trying to figure out why it was the Nixon speech mm -hmm. because mm -hmm. he resigned months before this because it places us in November 1974. Right. The criminologist has just set up for us that it's a late November evening and that kind of puts us in a time warp. If we were in 1975, we would think, wait, that's not right, because Nixon resigned in the summer. Like, why are they listening to this tape recording? And, and then I thought, well, maybe it's because Gerald Ford had just pardoned him. Uh -huh, uh -huh. But that happened two months before this as well. So I was like, why in the world would this be playing on the radio? So I was overjoyed when Haley told me that she found that <laughs> O'Brien said that Brad had recorded it because I could not come, with, uh, come up with no. a better excuse. That he's just like a political nerd. That he, he wants to listen to the speech over and over, but also... When you listen to the content of this speech, can you, okay, re, read me what Nixon is saying over the radio. I've never been a quitter. To leave office before my term was completed is abhorrent to every instinct in my body. But as president, I must put the interests of America first. America needs a full-time president and a full-time... There's a pause for Janet to offer Brad a piece of chocolate, and he continues... Congress, particularly at this time almost totally absorb the time and attention of both the president and the Congress in a period. Dot, 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 dot. And he's going on, but from what I can hear of this 
uh, speech, it sounds like Nixon's breaking up with America. Like, he's like, listen, listen, I'm not a bad guy. I, I never break up with people, okay? Like, to leave a relationship is, is abhorrent to every instinct in my body. But I have to put you first. You need a full-time boyfriend. You know what I mean? And it's interesting that Brad is studying this speech when he's also having such cold feet about proposing to Janet. For the last two months, has he been listening to this speech and practicing how he might let Janet off the hook? I don't Just know. Just in case she said no to the engagement or I don't know. Like, right. Because he had the ring in his pocket. He had the chalk in his pocket. He still <laughs> said, I don't know if I'm going to propose to her. Mm -hmm. And now he's listening to this breakup speech. Like, mm -hmm. he is cold feet definition. Yes. And what else is weird to me is Brad and Janet are not interacting at all on this uh -uh. drive. Brad is very focused on his drive, very mm -hmm. focused on Nixon over the radio. And Janet's just reading her newspaper and she's trying to interact with him, trying mm -hmm. to like, hey, do you want some of my chocolate? Yeah. And I think there there is a little bit of comfort in that relationship. And it is nice that when Brad needs to focus on the drive, they can sit comfortably in silence with each other. Mm -hmm. But also, it seems like every time Janet tries to interact with Brad in the car, it's kind of shot down. Maybe if Janet hadn't been reading her newspaper, they wouldn't have taken the wrong fork. But she's just been reading her newspaper because Brad has otherwise been focusing on driving and listening to the speech. And finally, Janet has something to talk about him with when a motorcyclist drives past them. And she turns to Brad after watching him pass. Gosh, that's the third motorcyclist that's passed us. They sure do take their lives in the ha their hands. What with the weather and all. Yes, Janet, life's pretty cheap to that type. <laughs> like, whoa, Brad, who asked for your opinion and judgment? She's just trying to have a conversation and be like, that's weird. Like, it's raining really hard. It's weird that we're taking a road trip right now. And we've seen three motorcycles in a row coming in the opposite direction when it kind of sounds like Dr. Scott lives on a, an acreage of land in the middle of nowhere so he can like alien watch <laughs> and uh, yeah, look at the stars. Yeah, they're out in the middle of nowhere. Yeah, they're out in the middle of nowhere. She's trying to make a conversation of, isn't that a little uncanny that we've been driving on this road and now all of a sudden three motorcyclists pass us? Brad just is super not interested. He like mm -hmm. completely shuts her down. Mm-hmm. She's just trying to offer him chocolate, like even without talking to him, she takes another bite of her chocolate. And I like to interpret that as how they decide to indulge in their sexualities. Like Janet is kind of chewing on the chocolate bar. She's not really swallowing. She's not really eating it. And she turns to Brad because, what's the matter, Brad, darling? Hmm, we must have taken the wrong fork a few miles back. They pull up to a blinking dead-end sign, and Janet says, Oh, but 
then where did that motorcyclist come from? Her original question, what she was trying to talk about with him before. And I'm putting the tinfoil hat back on. Hold on just uh -huh. a sec. What if those three motorcyclists mm -hmm. were the Transylvanians who went out and put up that sign so they had to come back and go to the castle? So it's possible that Brad did know the way. Did know the way well enough to comfortably take a road trip in the rain with no spare tire, without a map. Like that's how well he knew how to get there. I like that interpretation. I like that they didn't take a wrong fork and that they were led to believe they've arrived upon a dead end. But then we did see the map that's in the Denton Affair. Oh, right. And they did make a wrong turn. Yes. So Brad's still an idiot. Yeah, so Dr. Scott's <laughs> all the way up north and Frankenfurter's castle is all the way down south. Like, Brad for sure went the wrong way because Janet was too busy reading her newspaper uh -huh. to ask him, hey, are you sure that we make a right and not a left? And Brad just, you know, mm. he knew where to go. He didn't need a map. He didn't need to ask for directions. Yes, and that, it, like, typical man. No, I know the way. We're going to go. And I know how to get there. Hmm. He doesn't answer her question again. She's like, well, there have been other cars driving down the street. Well, I guess we'll just have to turn back. And the car he puts in reverse. He turns around to look where he's going, but that doesn't matter because the tire explodes. They skid to a stop. He does the mom arm to Janet. <laughs> like he makes sure that she doesn't, she, she doesn't hit the dashboard. And she goes, what was that thing? <laughs> well, she just sounds manic. And Brad doesn't, it doesn't even take him a second to realize. We must have a blowout, damn it. I knew I should have gotten that spare tire fixed. Ugh, she rolls her eyes. Well, you just stay here and keep warm. I'll go for help. But where will you go in the middle of nowhere? That's such a good question. It's Janet. such a good question. If, if Dr. Scott lives on acreage in the middle of nowhere, she knows there isn't a town on the way. She knows there's not a gas station halfway down the road. Like where are you? You're thinking the best idea right now is to abandon me in a car, in the dark, in the rain. Like, there's no way you're finding me again, bud. Didn't we pass a castle back down the road a few miles? Janet Mouth. Maybe they have a telephone I could use. <laughs> so if you're wondering what Janet Mouth is, we're going to post a screenshot, but it is like both of our favorite Janet facial expressions. Because she's about to say, I didn't see a castle. Because she's been reading the newspaper the whole time. So of course she doesn't <laughs> see a castle. But... He follows up with that there might be a telephone. So she's like, okay, I'm going with you. She unbuckles her seatbelt. Oh no, darling, there's no sense in both of us getting wet. I'm coming with you. And he turns off the car and now we're getting the full rain on the windshield effect because the windshield wipers have stopped. And I interpret that as Janet finally having her moment of silence and the Nixon speech isn't on, and there isn't any ambient noise occurring. Her 
only concern getting engaged to Brad. Her literal only concern. She says to him, besides darling, the owner of that phone might be a beautiful woman and you might never come back again. (laughs) (laughs) And all Brad does is chuckle at her and then proceed to get out of the car. She's looking for reassurance. She wants to know that if he did leave her in the car to go look for help, that he would come back and find her. He doesn't give her any warm feeling. He doesn't give her any um, any inkling or any reassurance. And I always interpret that as like, you know, two kids that are inseparable. Like, ha, could you imagine you falling for another woman? But Janet hasn't expressed anything that she expects out of their marriage. This is the first thing that she's expressing concern over in their relationship. So I do think it's important that he reassures her at least. Yeah, but he laughs her off. He dismisses it. He opens the car door. She begins to put her newspaper over her head. So if we were performing as Brad and Janet right now, Katie, Mm -hmm. you would be sitting... Um, I would probably still be trying to change my costume, to be honest. (laughs) I have literally seen this car scene where there is a person squatting below the stage holding up the steering wheel and Janet is talking to herself because Brad has to completely get undressed, then put on pants, a button-up shirt. No, hold on. His pants, his tank top, his button-up shirt, his sweater vest, a sweater vest, and his jacket, all Ugh. in like the span of however long it takes Krim to talk about what he's talking about. No, you know we know exactly how long it takes because we see later how long it does take to get that gosh darn sweater vest <laughs> over his head. We see exactly what a shadowcaster is doing in the wings. Um, but Brad and Janet are sitting center stage either on chairs that have been brought out for them to sit in a car, or I'm always a fan of sitting just like on the edge of a stage. Um, And it like gets you on eye level with people in the audience. And there's a lot of really good facial expressions, like we said with the Janet mouth, that you can focus on in this scene. So it's not just, you know, a boring car scene. And that means getting the right beats when you're offering the chocolate and hitting the the back of the chair (laughs) at the right time is important. Um, But Janet is in her pink gingham dress and uh, is sitting next to Brad reading her newspaper. We would continue to sit on stage until the end of this scene. I'd put that newspaper over my head and we would start what we'll be going over in this next segment. Yes, because that's it. We're done. That's it. That's this whole episode. I hope you guys enjoyed our detailing on Barry Bostwick and our theories. Please be sure to follow us on all of our social media. Yes, we've got... Instagram at Time Warp Radio. On Mm -hmm. Facebook, you can find us Time Warp Radio Podcast. Mm -hmm. Uh, We've got our blog spot. 
timewarpradio.blogspot.com. And if you'd like to buy us a cup of coffee or help us get our really cool smoking jackets, (laughs) uh, please support us on Patreon. We are timewarpradio.patreon.com. And next segment, we will be discussing that um, faulty self-inflating tire. Uh, (laughs) There is a light. We'll start discussing what happens in that castle. Uh, We will touch on time warp in the next episode. And don't forget, on on Wednesdays, Wednesdays, we we watch Rocky. Rocky. Bye. Bye. Please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. It really helps us out, and we appreciate all your feedback. We'll see you next time. Tell me why ain't nothing but a heartache. <laughs> Tell me why ain't